Hey, what's going on, everybody? This is your boy, Jay Mason. Welcome back to another episode of Beyond the Album Cover, where we get inside the entertainment industry with those in the know and give them their flowers while they're here to be celebrated. With me, I have no stranger to the podcast. He's been on several times. You can check out his previous interviews that he's done with me as we talk shop about music. Once again, I got the professor from the Professor's Lounge back in the building with me. The professor, welcome back, bro. Thank you, bro. I'm glad to be here, stuff, and congratulations on your success as well. It's great to be interviewed. You, it's great to be on your show again for a second, third time. Yes, sir. And it's always been great having you on as a guest. I look forward to talking with you. So let's go ahead and jump right into it. So the big announcement came on Monday. We're recording this interview on November the 10th. Monday was November the 6th. New Edition just announced that they will be doing a six-show Vegas residency starting in February of next year. It will go to March of next year. The ticket demands has been so high to where the pre-sale orders have caused Ticketmaster and other third-party sites to crash. They just had to release some more tickets. But as you and I know, the resellers, they ruined the fun for everybody. They snatch up those tickets, jack up the prices, and a lot of fans are getting priced out. So what are your thoughts on New Edition finally getting that Vegas residency because they had been talked about for years and now it's finally happening. But the downside is that since it's such a limited run for right now that a lot of fans are getting priced out of going to go see them. Well, good question, Jarrell. It's long overdue. The fact is that these six guys, you know, who has made it, still making the impact, it's well deserved because the fact is that New Edition shows, even though they they like they have on being hip-hop, they always had that staff class of like the Temptations, the, the Spinners, who's finally gotten ducked into Rock and Hall of Fame. It's really what we're doing now. As far as the tickets, now they should, I think that when it comes to like Vegas, they probably figured they're going to get it. They just want to get some sales, but they didn't, they didn't, they don't know that New Edition has a large fan base for them being as a group and as solo artists and with um three sprinter groups. So, you know, so they should have just really, they didn't count, they didn't like calculate properly. Yeah, so I'm thinking like how we were talking prior to the start of the interview that this is probably a test run for them in Vegas, that they're going to start them off at a small venue just to gauge the temperature to see if we do another residency with them, should we put them in a bigger venue? And I believe they're going to be blown away by the pack houses, the ticket sales, and that eventually they'll have to get put into a bigger venue. And it's all about whether they want to go out and come to the fans or do they want the fans to come to them in one spot? So that way, it'll be a win-win for both parties. That's a good question. I think New Edition, they always care about their fans because they always was about, we want to evolve, but we also want to stay connected to the fans. So I would say for them to do that, for them to get a larger venue and have the fans to come to them, it would be a win-win because the fact is that these other fans on the West Coast who have been seen this and the new edition has a large fan base over in Australia, UK. They could be able to fly to Vegas and it would be much closer to them. And also being that being that you know five of the members, you know, their parents and you know Bobby and Ralph are grandparents or grandfathers, I think they will be able to perform but also be able to rest and spend time with their families as well. Right. Or you can also do it to where it can be a Short extended residency where you're not super locked in like a Celine or Wayne Newton or other established Vegas acts that had long residency stays to where 
you can do it for a set time, but then have breaks in between where you can go out and tour and then come back to Vegas when it's off touring season for you. Well, that's a good idea as well, yes. Yeah, because I believe that's what Usher is planning on doing. Speaking of him, uh, he will be headlining the Super Bowl halftime show next year. And the big boom has been thanks to his residency in Vegas where celebrities and people all the like have been coming around to Sin City to see him perform. And you know, Usher will put on a good show and the world will definitely get to see that in February when he has lined the Super Bowl halftime show. So what's your thoughts on Usher finally getting that distinguished honor? Long overdue, long overdue. The fact is that Usher started out as a teenage performer and he evolved. Because I actually met Usher back in 1994 when I entered the of Records, maybe down to earth. And the fact is that for him to actually, he had, Usher has showmanship. He has showmanship. He has showmanship, and he knows how to give a good show. So it's really great for him to actually perform at a Super Bowl. It goes to show that, you know, that when you work hard and you persevere and you actually have showmanship, things can happen. Right, and you mentioned you met Usher when you were interning at Arista Records. And I want to go back to his debut album because I know a lot of people felt that that album was totally slept on but felt that the songs didn't match where Usher was at that time, but he really didn't hit his groove until he hooked up with JD and released My Way. So why do you think Usher's debut album doesn't really get talked about as much or when he's on tour, I'm not sure if he performs any cuts off of the debut album. It's pretty much My Way and Ford. That's a good question because when I when I got to Usher, it seemed like, I remember when he did his first single, Pour Me a Mac, that was a good single because we got a feel of it. But then during that time, you know, the fact is that L.A. Reid was executive producer. And he had him work with Puffy. And I guess they was just trying to find out who Usher was. Because even though I'm, even when I was, I was speaking with a publisher at the time, we, all of us were saying, a lot of us saying that it seemed that it was more of a Puffy album than an Usher album. And also I read Evans' book and Usher, had to fight because Usher also wanted to be involved with some of the writing. And so, uh, so Faith was like, what you get in mind? So they started talking. So she said, so Faith was like, she said, just go in the booth and sing the hook. So basically Usher was back there. He was fighting to say, she, he was fighting to say, listen, I may be a kid, but I wanna, I'm not just, a, I'm not a typical kid. I can sing and dance and I can write. Yeah, which is kind of rare because you have a kid in his teens that really want to be hands-on with the process. And typically, that's kind of like a gray area for writers and producers is that you want to make material that's not too young, but not too old either. You want to find that sweet spot. And it's kind of difficult to have a kid really want to have that empowerment first time out and say, hey, you don't know anything about this business yet. Let us go ahead and handle it. You go in. You do what you need to do, and let's be done with it. That's true. Right. And how you mentioned on the debut album how it definitely had a early bad boy sound since Diddy's hands was all over that. You also had production on that album by Kyle West, who you can catch my interview on on Beyond the Album Cover, available on all streaming platforms. I'll be sure. Devontae from Jodeci. So it really had that bad boy feel to it and personally i love the album but i felt when he got with jd 
it was where I think JD kind of took the Jam and Lewis approach with Usher, yeah. really sat down, really tailor made songs that suited him and just captured his personality and his strong stage presence. That is true because I mean, I listened to a lot of the songs from the first album because I had a copies of it. I mean, like when he did on um, Can You Get With It, you know, he was singing about sex at a young age, and it was like, what the? Because he went from going back then when he did Think of You. It was just basically him going through like, you know, like, you know, like him going through the teenage thing where, you know, you know, we don't know what happened then, the many ways. I think the many, I think like the many ways was to start this show, Usher's Mellow Side. I mean, there were some songs that I really felt that could have been singles. Like one song, I don't even remember some of the tracks, but, you know, it was just there's some other songs that could have been singles. I think if Usher was to perform, like certain songs from the album besides think of you you know it would definitely it would definitely you know it, it would definitely enlarge it would definitely enlarge its fan base and it can really show how far usher has has evolved yeah so definitely sprinkling maybe one or two cuts from the debut album then of course go my way confessions so on and so forth but you mentioned the many ways and that was one of my favorite cuts off of the debut album and i felt like the whole style vibe and vocals of that song it felt like it was maybe probably it was approached to tevin first to probably record it because it had that same feel of i'm ready but tevin might have passed on it and i'm sure you may or may not know but there's been rumor or word i don't know if it's been confirmed or denied that can we talk was originally for usher and for some reason or another Kevin ended up recording it. So, so what do you think about the similarities between some of those records between Tevin and Usher? Good question. I think that you know that vocally, see, so a lot of people talk about Usher being the intent, but Usher has a great voice. The fact is that the many ways it was showing Usher's mellow side. Now, and you and you asked me about can we talk? Because I didn't even know that it was it was for Usher originally. Now, I think that, you know, both of those artists are great singers. I think that it would have worked with both of them. I think at the time when Tevin was doing his album, because because when he was Tevin was doing his second album, you know, he started working with Babyface and Prince, not Michael Walden. Now, Tevin revealed in Black Me Magazine that he originally wanted Don't Say Goodbye, Girl, to be the first single to the album. But, you know, the record label was like, no, 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 we, you know, Babyface and Dallas is how it's going with that. And Tevin even said that he tried to have Can We Talk remix, you know, just to have a different vibe, but the re the remixes wasn't working, so he so he went back to that, and I just learned that in 2017, Mesa covered her edition of Can We Talk. And that was also covered by, I believe, a British boy group by the name of Code Red, Can We Talk. Well, I, gotta, I gotta check that out. Yeah, and um, speaking of Arista, just released last month was the Millie Vanilli documentary on Paramount Plus. It felt like they really expanded on what was initially talked about when they did their Behind the Music, which was the initial episode of Behind the Music. And coming away, looking at the documentary, you really felt that they were put in a bad spot and Frank Farian really hung them out to dry. I agree with you, Jarrell, because... When I'm when I remember when Millie Vanilli first came out, 
Now, I like the songs. I'm saying I wasn't like a major fan, but I did like some of the songs. Now, when I read the interview with Ebony Magazine, I learned that they was from Germany. I was like, cool, because a lot of artists during that time, like we had like another British and European invasion with pop and R&B singers, you know, singing. So I just assumed that because a lot of artists overseas have soulful, soulful pop and, and um, pop voices. Now, I remember also, now, the, now I remember they did an interview, I think it was with Blackbeat or Rhyme Magazine. They was asking them about, about their sing. So They actually said, you know, they said, we do have um, backing tracks to help us dance when we do sing live. Now, when that scandal came out, I could admit that it was it took me a surprise as and it was like, what the heck? Because I was my first year of junior college. So, you know, I was watching, like I I'm a type, I was always watching different shows, you know, about the about the situation. But when they said that, you know, listen, you know, we wanted to sing, but we signed the contract. And then when I heard them actually sing for real, my thing was these guys can sing, they just had pop voices and they should have had more material for their voices. Right, and it definitely felt that Arista was complicit in it because once they saw, hey, they're making money over here, best-selling album, number one hits, selling out tours, and then, of course, came the Grammy nomination, then winning Best New Artist, and then the Grammy getting revoked. It just kind of showed that maybe if Millie Vanilli had not popped off here in the U.S., then this probably would have been a blip on the radar. I agree, because I watched a documentary, Jarrell, I watched all of them behind the music and the current one, and they was even saying that they did not want to win a Grammy. Now, you know, like most artists, you know, any artists, they make the first thing they say, you know, I want to win a Grammy, but for them to say, we don't want to win a Grammy, we don't want to win a Grammy. Because I was just thinking that if they would have just performed on the American Music Awards, which sometimes artists, they do sing live and they lip sync, they probably would have, I would say they probably would have got some pull because at the time, it was like either you perform on the American Music Awards or the Grammys. Now, the fact is that these cats, they knew that if they got a Grammy, it was going to get, it was going to get deep. And the fact is that Frank, the fact is that Frank Ferrier, you know, did think I got some things that I'm a fan. Remember Jermaine Jackson's solo, Take It Personal? Yep. I I was reading the book about the book called the R&B number one R&B hits. Turns out that um the surface who wrote who Miller, they offered it to Frank Ferry and Miller Vanilli. Now they wanted to produce the song. Frank, but Frank was like. Send me the tracks I'm gonna do it in Germany. And they was like, no, 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 we don't work like that. They say, either you come to the States or we'll fly to Germany. You know, Frank refused, so Clive Davis had to intervene. And he was like, look, this is a major project. He was like, listen, if he was like this, either Frank comes to the States and work with us, or we'll fly to Germany. So they said, we will we will go to Germany, you know, to help produce the songs and songs. So Frank refused, so they said, okay, well, anybody else? So they gave it to Jermaine. And, and it became Jermaine's second number one army hit as a solo artist. Wow, a little bit of backstory and surface at that time. White hot, white hot, white hot, white hot. And like you mentioned how had it not been for the Grammy, it probably would have been a fly-by-night thing. But, you know, the Grammys carries a lot of weight when you get that golden gramophone that solidifies you as being 
one of the top of the top, the Don Dada, the cream of the crop. And for them to pretty much go through that witch hunt in the media, looking back on it in hindsight, it felt like it was blown out of proportion. I would say yes, because the thing is that they went after Fabrice and Rob Mavis. They went after those two. And they was even saying, you know, look, okay, you know, we wanted to sing, but we signed, we was told, okay, you know what? We was told we were going to sing, and then we was told we couldn't, and we signed the contract. We was in debt. And the fact is that the fact is that um they had to prove themselves. And I remember watching the the um the you know when they watched the press conference when they was asked when they came in, and they said when Fabrice started rapping and spitting and then Rob singing on live, the audience was pissed, but they had to give him a prize. I remember they were clapping because their thinking was everybody was saying, shit, they can't really sing. What the hell? And the fact is that they got with Michael Jackson's vocal coach, Seth Rich, for them to even for him to come and say, these guys have the capability of doing what we're supposed to do. I don't know why they didn't allow them to do what they're supposed to, but they have the capability. Yeah, but and then the funny thing about that was after that press conference or prior to, Frank got ahead of it and said, okay, I'm going to pull back the curtain and show you how the sausage was made. Oh, yeah, because the fact is that he was scared that that they was going to, they told him that if you let us sing, or we going to tell the truth. And the fact is that they got lawyers. I think, see, they get, Frank Farron got, Frank got scared. And then also thing that I look at the documentary, I mean, it was exploitation of, you know, of, you know, black people and women, because even the original female artists, the female vocalists who sang background, when Frank decided, I'm going to do the, I'm going to have the real movement in, he didn't even have them on tour. He just hired some light-skinned um, black females to go on tour and lip sync. Mm-hmm. And I didn't even know about Boney M until the documentary where he pulled the, that same stuff a couple decades prior to Millie Vanilli, but because they weren't really big in the U.S., it didn't really catch anybody's attention. Right, because I didn't even know anything about Boney M until recently before the documentary because i'm always doing research and it just happened to come up in the feed i mean but the sad thing is this you know it was just sad that rob you know he actually died and stuff because his life was really tragic because for him being you know for him not knowing his biological parents and being adopted by a white family and he, and he had to experience racism and colorism you know and, and i think that really gave him that the drive to you know what I'm gonna make it. I'm gonna show you. And the fact is that, you know, he. You know, the fact is that um, he because the way that he was talking, he had to really show his heart. because it was really painful that that he had, that he had to die the way he did. But I think the thing about it is that Fabrice, even though Fabrice has said, you know, listen, you know, you know, we, you know, he was getting deep in the drugs. I we we. I mean, we caught it. It was like this. I wasn't like. Fabrice was like, I can't be your friends with him. His thing was, I'm not going down that road. Come with me. But, you know, Rob, you know, he already had demons that he had before he got in the industry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so when you already have trauma, insecurities, and you layer that on top with fame, then it just exacerbates it. And then when the rug is pulled from under you, you can have a hard time. And it turned out, you know, he did. And unfortunately, he ended up passing away. So, R.I.P. Rob Pilatus. And right around 89, 90, another act that was white hot all over the world, 
set the stage for the boy band teen pop phenomenon of the late 90s, early 2000s. New Kids on the Block, they just recently announced that they'll be doing a tour this upcoming summer, which is a newer version of their Magic Summer Tour that they did back in 1992 support Step by Step. But on this time around, it will be with them, DJ Jazzy Jeff, and Paul Abdul. So your take on this new tour and how new kids are just continuing to just add on to their legacy and showing why they, along with New Edition, set the standard for every boy band to come after them since. Good question, because New Kids on the Block, the fact is that they themselves, the fact is that they all they had always acknowledged, you know, we was influenced by R&B, so and pop music, and the fact is that like Usher, they have showmanship. You know, they have show they have showmanship and they care about the fans and they didn't forget who they came, who they come from. And facts that they was Paul and for Paula Abdul. I mean, next year it's gonna be like the 35th anniversary of her of her um hits on straight up. And the fact is that Paula Abdul was actually torn after she went through, you know, issues with her vocals and she had and she had like injured her back and she had nerve issues, but for Paula Abdul. To actually, you know, say, you know what, I'm still, I'm still gonna perform. I don't have no new music out there, but I'm gonna perform with uh, DJ Jazzy Jeff. I mean, an innovative DJ. And the fact is that um, new kids on the block and Paul do love hip hop. They have, they have the rapper who, who actually was the first rap DJ to win American Music Award and a Grammy going tour. That is gonna, that's really, that's epic. Right. And speaking of the Grammys, I believe the first rap Grammy was awarded in 89 and how they just recently take a Grammy salute special to the 50th anniversary of hip hop, which will air next month. And it's funny how things come full circle with how the Grammys are now saluting hip hop. But back when they did the first rap Grammy award, it wasn't even televised. It was on the pre-televised portion, and a lot of the rappers of the day ended up boycotting the Grammys. So what's your take on seeing the Grammys now saluted to where it was fighting to try to get a seat at the table and how hip-hop 50 years today is the world's most popular genre of music to where we have generations of people that grew up on this genre that was something out of nothing. Good question. It, I remember when that boycott happened because I was in I was eleventh grade. I was a, a junior in high school. How you know they was boycotting because they were saying you know why can't you just show why can't you just show us getting the award and stuff you know it's it's whack. And then Kumo D actually appeared on the show and was presented with Ken White. And I remember he went up there and he freestyled and introduced Ken White. So I think that the fact is that Kumo D decided you know what. I'm not going to protest. I'm going to go on the show, but I'm going to show you why we need why we need to be why we need to have a seat in this in this auditorium. And the fact is that and another thing to um JC boycotted the um Grammys and nice when they, they when they wasn't going to nominate the best rap album of the year. He boycotted that. He he boycotted and then now now you see now they I think they started to see that oh these grant these rap you know, hip hop is making money and you know, a lot of the kids liking it. And it wasn't just like the black kids. It was when they saw that the women was liking hip hop, the white kids was liking hip hop, and members of the LGBT community was liking hip hop. That's when it was like, okay, we gotta we gotta uh, be inclusive. Right. And you mentioned how during the show, 
Kumo D freestyle when introducing Karen White. But if you go back and look at the performance by the late Sinead O'Connor, she had the Public Enemy logo in her head. So she was always down with hip hop. I mean, she had MC Light on the Put Your Hands On Me record and how mm -hmm. she really stood for something. And she wasn't going to be the music industry's puppet. And she pretty much said, I'm not going to play your game, even though nothing compares to you became a big hit. I'm not going to be the pop darling you want me to be. I'm going to speak out on issues. And when she tore that picture up of the Pope, after when she performed War on SNL, that pretty much started where she was on the music industry's ish list. Oh, yes, because I remember, I didn't know much about Sinead. I remember seeing her on Video LP, they did on some video show on BET. And I remember the song, but then when she came out with nothing that compares to you, and I remember hearing the song, but then I remember about about the answer. But then when she was on the MTV videos, when she talked about, she would say, "Why is it that you know, a, why is it that you know you want a song? Why are we singing a song that's talking about unity when there's still racism and sexism?" And let's just say this: a lot of the black communities was 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 rooting her. Once she said that, it was like you go. And the thing about her ripping a picture with the Pope. The fact is that she was bringing out, she was bringing an issue about about people being abused in church. Now, and I guess they think it's just how dare this woman, you know, this bald headed white woman, you know, is speaking out. Basically, they like I said they wanted her to probably be the pop dog singer about, oh, I want a man and stuff, and oh my baby, baby. Her thing was this: I'm going to speak up because she wanted to empower people, and they didn't like that about her. Right, she definitely was gonna speak loud, not speak down, and pretty much tell the truth and stand our toes about it. And of course, you know, with her coming from Ireland, we've seen a lot of early material with U2, how they were speaking out on issues, you know, Sunday, Bloody Sunday, Pride, about the assassination of MLK, about how they really were deep in speaking out on their issues and not willing to conform to the pop standards. That's true, because that's the thing. Whenever an artist, you know, speaks, you know, to speak out on issues, it's like it's sort of like a double sword. They get respected, but they get like I, they, they get blasted because they think they think that I mean, because music is supposed to make you feel good. Like I said, when I do my podcast, I always announce that hey, I would play some songs that want to make you get turned up in the dance floor, and once you get and, and want to get turned up in the bedroom. But I like to play songs that's going to uplift you because we're still experiencing. Racism, sexism, homophobia, heterophobia, you know, colorism, you know, classism. And the thing is this, that's the thing too. Music is is good, is music is a tool for healing. Right. And with nothing that compares to you, I want to backtrack a minute to Sinead O'Connor. And I was surprised that they were able to get the clearance from Prince to record it, because that was originally done by the family on their one album that they released, The Family, another splinter act from the Prince Family Tree, which featured, uh, uh, I believe it's Wendy or Lisa, can't remember which one, but that's the sister. And then St. Paul Peterson, who was in Purple Rain and the Time Band, Jelly Bean and Jerome. So that was originally released on The Family's album, and then Sinead O'Connor, ended up uh, recording that and it became a worldwide international smash. Now, to backtrack 
back to the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You mentioned the Spinners. And New Edition paid tribute to the Spinners, performing the three-song medley of the Spinners hits and how, you know, they're a direct descendant of the Spinners and group that, groups that preceded them, like the Shy Lights, Blue Magic, the Whispers, the Temptations, because that's the school that Brooke Payne comes from. And your thoughts on the Spinners finally getting into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? What took them so damn long? They, of all the Motown groups, along with the Marvelous, who's being inducted, the Spinners, they made, I was a kid when my mother had that album, Molly Love, and she used to play that album and the rubber band man could I that was one of my favorite songs that do 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 but then you know doing research later on it was amazing how they was with Motown and Mo, even though they was just as talented they didn't get the promotion and then when they did it's a shame they get you know they they had the breakthrough then when they moved to Atlanta there was Aretha Franklin who was the one that suggested that when they contract aspires to come to Atlanta and that's when they really and they had originally Motown Philly. They, you know, with Boyce McKenna with Motown Philly, the Spinners is the originally is the original Motown Philly act because he was just a group from Detroit, you know, linked up with the late great Tom Bell and the late great Linda Cree, you know, who needs to be recognized as well. But I'm like, and, and they create some timeless classic like could it be a form of love, love don't love nobody. And um, you know, and um, Sadie, which was I later learned was sampled by Tupac for um, their mama. Mm-hmm. And Tom Bell, Linda Creed, may they rest in peace. Part of the Philly soul sound with Philly International and all the great songs that are produced out of Sigma Sound Studios. Rest in peace, Bunny Siegler, and all the great songwriters and producers to come out of Philly. And you mentioned when the contract was up for the Spinners to go to Atlantic after it didn't really work out with Motown until It's a Shame finally popped. And of course that was sampled when Moni Love did It's a Shame. I believe that was on the Class Act soundtrack, but the lead vocalist at the time of the Spinners along with uh, Bobby Smith was GC Cameron. And when the contract was up for them to go to Atlantic because he was still under contract with Motown, he couldn't join them on the move. So he referred his cousin Felipe Wynn to join the group. That is true, yeah, yeah, because he, because I learned that JC he was also dating Gwen Gordy at the time, so she she was his manager and he had the contract. And I even learned that on Sunday that they was like really, and Eddie Kendricks was the one that was like, y'all need to get him. And Felipe is very was what was a, was a talented singer because he had his voice was very powerful and mellow. And I'm just learning that he used to always like ad lib on the top of his head when they were recording. He was always coming up with, you know, like ad libbing. Even when he did the concerts, he was coming off like some of the rappers doing. And then, like I said, with Bobby Smith singing and and Harry, the original one who survived, they was like the main ones who sang. I guess that because Bobby and Felipe's voices were similar, everybody thought it was Felipe, but they had to let them know, no, these were the main singers. And you and then you had the bass singer. Now, I mean, because I mean, they was able to sing like the romantic ballads and songs about heartache, and they also had some good dance moves too. Because some dance music as well. Because I love their music. I mean, I've seen another thing too when Felipe decided to leave, which was on a good route. He was replaced by John Edwards, and this is when at the time when Tom Bell decided 
he was going to move on to other things. They Spinners had to revamp and having John. It was like how when Dennis Edwards, you know, joined the Temptations and when Gene Terrell and Sherry Payland joined the Supremes, they was able to bring new life and truth. And the fact is that John was able to, you know, sing like they saw working my way back to you. Uh, forgive me, girl. You know, forgive you know, forgive me, girl. It was a big hit in Cupid. He was able to help bring life into the group. Now, I am disappointed that JC was not, you know, inducted along with the rest of the with rest of the original members. I mean, I did. I understand, you know. Okay, they may have had a film with him, not joined to Atlantic, but it was the contract. And I think JC was smart to know if I try to break this contract, I'm gonna get sued. So I really feel that you know that he they should at least you know just include him in, because he sang on a breakthrough hit. It's a shame. Which was produced by Stevie Wonder. And I believe that was also co-written by him and is it Sarita Wright? Yes. That's I true. Say. And yeah. I believe they also did I Can't Help It for Michael Jackson for Off the Wall. And I believe when I was looking at the Showtime documentary about Off the Wall, Stevie had said that originally I believe it was supposed to be on one of his albums, but felt like it didn't fit. So they ended up giving that to Michael, but back once again to GC. Had he not left Motown, we wouldn't have gotten It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday, which he did for the Cooley High movie soundtrack, which was later made popular by a little group out of Philadelphia. You might have heard of them. Nate, Mike, Sean, and Wanye, better known as Voice to Men. And also, another fun fact from... Uh, for that record. I don't know if you know this, but when I interviewed Jazz from the group Whistle, he had mm-hmm. told me that they were originally wanted to do that record, but what ended up happening was, I believe, Voice to Man ended up beating them to the punch. I had no idea. Yeah, yeah. Whistle had wanted to remake It's So Hard to Say Goodbye to Yesterday, but Voice to Man ended up beating them to the punch. And that was another group that was very, very underrated. Whistle, they were on Select Records. Um, biggest hits was Just Buggin', Barbara's Bedroom, and their great rendition of the Heat Wave classic, Always and Forever. Now, I gotta definitely check that because I remember hearing Whistle. I remember hearing one or two of their songs, but I'm gonna have to recheck that, check out their catalog. Yeah, definitely that. Uh, a lot of their stuff was done by. Uh, the late Kingo Kid from UTFO, rest in peace. And how, when you think about that time period, mid-80s, late-80s, you had all these different genres cross-pollinizing and how it was a smorgasbord of different genres. Everybody's taking from one, going to the other. And especially when with hip-hop, by that point, being officially on record commercially for I believe six, seven years at that point because I believe Rapper's Delight came out in what, 79? So commercially hip-hop was on record I want to say seven years even though they said there were hip-hop records prior to Rapper's Delight a lot of people recognized Rapper's Delight as kind of like the first tree that fell in the forest for hip-hop. And uh, what was your thoughts on seeing DJ Cool Hurt get inducted? And to just think, 
this man took a culture from Jamaica, the dubbing, toasting, sound system culture, integrated it with this Burgoyne genre called hip hop, started in the basement for a back to school party at 1520 Cedric Avenue to where there's classes, books, literature, clothing, pretty much anything that you could think of that's tied into hip hop ties back to him. So what was your thoughts on seeing them getting inducted and being here to see this thing start in that little basement in that building to where it is now? I think it's really amazing. That's how you celebrate, you know, something, you know, something very um spectacular. To have him be inducted into Rockwell Hall of Fame, it was really great. I love the. It was really great, just you know, to learn about how, and I to heard about a little part. Here it is, a little party that happened, something that was grassroots to become a multicultural, a global phenomenon. And I, I love the practice that um he ignored. He had his sister on the stage with him, but he was in tears because it was really great to see because you know. Because a lot of people thought that rap and hip hop was just going to be a passing fancy affair, but look what happened. Here it is, like you said, we have um classes on hip hop. We have and you know um hip hop, you know, you know fashion and style, and you know giving lectures on hip hop and and a lot of R and B singers, you know, are start to you know recruit rappers to you know to rap on their records, and they even incorporated hip hop um styles and you know producers, you know, to give their music an edge. Right, and how you mentioned rappers and singers collaborating, think about prior to 85, 86. Rap and R&B were pretty much separate. The only instance prior to, once say, Full Forces production to where you had rapping and singing was there was a record by Renee and Angela and they had Curtis Blow on the record. And I believe the record is called Save Save Me For Your Number One or something to that, that effect. Yes. So we could kind of sort of say that record was kind of like the first one to really have rap and R&B together, even though the production was very heavy R&B. But when Full Force came in, of course, later, Teddy Riley, Guy, and everything that came after, that was when the streets met the suite and it was just a good meshing and a good fit. That's good, Jarrell, because I got some trivia for you. Did you ever hear Rick James' album, Cold-Blooded? Yes. Well, there's a song on the album called P.I. called Pimp to Sip, and he actually had Grandmaster Millie Mel, you know, rap on the song. Mm. That was like way before, because I remember my mother and my sister's father giving me the album for Christmas. And, I, and so he was telling me about, he schooled me about you know, Grandmaster Flash, if I was a group, Melly Mel was just a member. So Rick was one of the first ones you actually know, you know, have a rapper, you know, rapping on the song. Right. And then also too, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and Duck T Shaka Khan covered I Feel For You, which was originally done by Prince on the self-titled album. And I believe Melly Mel was on that as well. And also that record sampled Stevie Wonder's fingertips. The little breakdown part was that say yeah. That was sample from uh Stevie Wonder Stevie Wonder's fingertips. Yeah, because it yes, because I still remember when they came out, you know, and Shaka Khan has said that 
that when she that she said that when she first met Prince, you know, Prince called her room, pretend to be like Sly Stone. And so she was like, so he was out here and tells her she goes to the studio and she's like, hello, I'm looking for Sly. He said, that's me. She said, who the hell are you? And she said that when she said she wanted to smack him, but while they was talking, his album was playing and I feel for you came on. So she said that she wanted to, she said she was going to record the song, but then when she finally left Rufus, once was like, okay, tell her in the late Arif Marvin, listen, it's time to sell some records. So Shaka said that she was going to finally do the song. Now, I've learned that Arif had wanted Prince to come in and play guitar on the song, but it didn't happen due to scheduling conflicts because he was still working on Purple Rain. Now, the harmonica part, Stevie actually did that the day after. He actually came right after Marvin Gaye's funeral and played the harmonica part. I mean, they did sample fingertips, and they also um, he also added the harmonica. Now, Melly Mel, he recorded his raps like in Sugar Hill Studios in North. Now, Arif said originally that little Shaka Shaka Khan intro was mainly, it was a mistake because he was just trying to like, you know, do so. He was doing the mix and he was checking the machine with he that Shaka Shaka Khan. And then he was like, this is going to be good. And Shaka said that when she came in studio, she was like, whack. She said that. She was like, you know, I'm going to live with this song for the rest of my He said, no, Shaka, it's going to be, it's going, it's going to be a hit. And she and it's a hit because she was, she says that she's appreciative of the song's success. I mean, because that was a good thing too. The hit was, you know, Shaka Khan, the siren, the funk, you know, doing something. And then I learned, I remember there was two videos. The original video, they featured, you know, Shaka, you know, just hanging out with her girls and they going to a strip club. They showed that video on Video Music Box. I'm sorry, um, damn. It looks hot tracks on Labor Day Weekend. But then they did another video, you know, to show breakdance and you have to get more of the younger crowd. Yeah, I don't remember that alternate original version of the I Feel For You video. You mentioned that it was on New York Hot Tracks, which was hosted by Carlos De Jesus, who was on uh, Disco 92 WKTU at the time. And it was around that time to where you had all these different regional music video shows to where you would kind of see versions of videos that probably didn't make it onto BET or they went and shot a more network-friendly version of the video at a later time in order to get more mainstream nationwide airplay. And you mentioned Sugar Hill Records, where Melly Mel cut his uh, vocals on I Feel For You, and this was out of New Jersey, and how New Jersey always tends to get looked at as the rear-headed stepchild when it comes to hip-hop, because it's pretty much New York or nothing. But when you think of New Jersey, you think of, like mentioned Sugar Hill Records and how Sylvia Robinson, think about the time frame where 70s, a black woman, head of the record label, pretty much being her own boss, putting rap on record, and then everything to spawn after that, which was, you know, naughty by nature, who she had a hand in helping earlier in their careers when they were originally known as the new style. I believe they put out one record or so under that name before they switched to Naughty by Nature, had the success. And then of course the late Apache, Queen Latifah, Flavor Unit, uh, rest in peace, DJ Mark 45 King. And how, you know, New Jersey definitely deserves 
more than just being looked at as just the Garden State and the number two in hip hop for the contributions that they gave to us. That's a, I agree with you because there's a lot of talented artists from Jersey because you know when Queen Latifah, you know, came out because I my family used to shop in Jersey as a kid. So the fact is that uh, and plus a lot of you know celebrities they live in Jersey. The fact is that you know you have Queen Latifah, you have uh you know Mark Forty Five, and you have Money by Nature. You know, and um, and Red Man, they was at, they was actually adding on to the culture by letting them know, hey, you know what, you hey, you know, yes, you know, we're across the water and stuff, but you know, we got, you know, we got stories to tell. You know, we can um spit just as hard as well. And also, Latif was on business part shock him. The fact is that he was able, you know, to um form a management company in Jersey. That really shows that that really shows so because there's a lot of artists from Jersey because, like you say, they talk about New York, but Jersey. Has a lot of talent because they have a lot of house artists, you know, you know, is you know, come, you know, you know, they have clubs out there where they play hip hop and house music. Mm, and also coming out of Jersey, you have Lords and Underground, Four Righteous Teachers, Today, Riff, and uh, we could go on and on about all the other acts that come from the Garden State. And I want to go back to full force and yeah. how they Bolega Lou, Shy Shy, Baby Jerry, Paul Anthony, Be Fine, and Kurt T T T T they took the melodies of R and B with the street sounds of hip hop, merged them together to create a sound for themselves and for other acts such as Lisa Lisa and the Cold Jam, Cheryl Pepsi Riley they later went on to do their work with pop acts such as Backstreet Boys, NSYNC, and Britney Spears. Now, speaking of Britney, she just released her book uh, not too long ago, and she airs it all out. Now, the reason why I bring up Full Force and Britney was that in her early years before, I guess, when she first signed the Jive and before Hit Me Baby One More Time became a hit, she did some stuff with Full Force that I believe wasn't released on Hit Me Baby, but uh, she did one record with them that was called Love to Hurt Away. It pretty much sounded like an updated version of All Cried Out and how, you know, a lot of those acts, Britney, NSYNC, Factory Boys, you know, got with Full Force to get that R&B flavor and it worked so well to where you know, I'm sure Full Force is still eating off all I have to give to this day. Yeah, Full Force definitely. Now, they need to be honored, not with the Rock and Roll Fame, Soul Train Music Awards, BET Awards. They need to honor them because the fact is that Full, when, I still remember when seeing the 12th inch of Roxanne, Roxanne. I remember seeing, you know, the credits, UTFO, Full Force. I didn't know anything about who he was until I saw the videos with Lisa Lisa Coach Jerry then. When I saw Full Force, it was like, wow, these are muscular guys and stuff with, you know, with Jerry Curls. The fact is that they sang and they can play and they were musicians. That's the thing that really makes Full Force very unique. The fact is that they, you know, all of them sing, they write, produce, and they play instruments. So I think that's what really, you know, set them apart because the fact is that they was doing R&B, hip hop, house, and salsa. I actually learned that that the uh, that the George brothers, their parents is they 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 have they have Caribbean descent because their mother was born in 
the Dominican Republic, and they, they have that Black, Asian, American, um, you know, Latin thing, and um, and they, one of their cousins is from Trinidad, so of course they have. That's what they throw with the melodies that they do. And plus, they they actually study the greats, like the Motown, the productions, and really so. And that's the thing about Full Force. The fact is that uh, even the fact is that that and even watching they unsung, how you know they actually brought they actually brought exotic dancing into music, which was something they do. Because they later on you see like genuine, you know, Usher they up here, you know, performing, doing like loose, like you know, like strip T shows. In fact, in fact, that they learned that Full Force, and they also was promoting physical fitness because in videos you saw Paul Anthony. You know, working out, and they actually was promoting physical fitness and rock dancing, and they showing, and they were showing that black musicians we could produce all types of music. Now, talking about like now about the white acts. Now, in the in the mid nineties, you know, they just started to take a break, and then when they wanted to work with these black art, it was some of the AR. They could say, "Oh, you those motherfucking niggas with jerry curls, right?" Now, mind you, Full Force cut out their jerry curls back in nineteen eighty nine. And that's when they would say, okay, you know what? Fuck this. We're gonna go with the we're gonna go work with the white acts. And what happened when they started hitting golden platinum with Backstreet Boys, Britney and NSYNC, and other groups? That's when those same blacks, you know, executives who tried to look at them as has-beens was up here calling ringing it. They were ringing it, they was um blowing they um two age up and they and they paged their cell phone off, hey, you know, come produce my acts. Yeah, because when I interviewed Bowlegged Lou, he had told me the story about how they came up with All I Have to Give. It was where they were kind of like on the downside on their recording. And I believe he or one of the other members went to Barry Weiss, who was head of Jive, and asked, hey, do you have some acts for us that we can do some stuff on? And this was before they really popped in the U.S. I believe they had maybe one or two singles out here, but they were huge in Europe at this point. And they got Backstreet stuff. And I believe Baby Jerry had all they have to give. And Bolegalu told them, smash it. And it became a big international smash. Backstreet Boys opened up the pop lane for full force. And how, like I said, that record... They're still eating off on to this day. They also worked on Rihanna's Music of the Sun album very early, went before she became the big international star. And then also Dare to Hand and uh, Nicki Minaj too, early in her career, because uh, she was in a rap group called Hood Stars, I believe. And in, in that group also was Bowlegged Lou's son. So, you know, they had a hand in, you know, helping Nicki out early in her career, but definitely full force should be mentioned more, honored, revered for what they done in the music industry. And another act that the real ones know, but not too many mainstream people don't, but this act from Staten Island, one of the first ones to really combine rap, hip-hop. The original was hip-hop. The original was called The Force MCs. Rest in peace, DJ Dr. Shock, and then ended up changing their names to the Force MDs. And of course, they ended up getting signed to Tommy Boy, and then we all know the success that they had after that. So, what was your take on the first time you hearing of Force MDs? I remember, I remember I was in elementary school when I remember hearing the radio and then that intro and then that 
that let me the harmony and the rapping. It was like it caught it caught me off guard. It really caught me off. It really caught me off guard because hearing singing and rapping, and then seeing how some of the kids would like break dance and they would break dance and do like the poly pop into the rap pop. But then then when they came out with the ballad tears, that's when I was like, oh my god! And then watching this song itching for a scratch and. I think the Force and Bees, they really appealed to, you know, to kids who sang and who got rap. They was basically showing that, you know, you can do both. Now, I think it's one of my favorite songs they did was when they linked it with the Fat Boys and they actually they actually had the um, Gilligan's um, Allen theme song. That was a huge radio hit. I mean, a lot of kids would always be singing that song and rapping and then before Tell Look, and I really, a lot of fans was even saying that that they don't know why Tommy Boy did not release it as a single or do a video. For for what song? It was the four seventies meet the fat boys. Oh yeah, I remember that record. I have that on the Let Me Love You Four Four Seventies Greatest Hits album and how, you know, the Fat Boys, another group rap wise that should be recognized more, especially, you know, Prince Marky D, rest in peace. For his songwriting and his production, you know, that he did with uh, Corey Rooney. Of course, they did Real Love for Mary J. Blige, um, Menagerie, Prince Marky D, solo stuff with Prince Marky D in the Soul Convention off the free album. And then, of course, he put out Love Daddy. And I just think a lot of people with Prince Marky D was still stuck on seeing him as, you know, you're the guy from the Fat Boys from Disorderlies and, you know, even though he had hits as a producer and songwriter, a lot of people still wanted to see him as one of the Fat Boys. Well, that was the thing because when he, I remember when the Fat Boys came, you know, you know, you know, launched their music. Now, when he did, when he started producing Mary J. Blige, I did not know like his name, the real names at the time. But then when he did his solo album, I was just, I was really amazed to see that you know that he grew because you saw that. Oh, it was like the big shock, like, oh shit, he was wearing fat boys, but the fact is that he was rapping up, he was rapping as an adult. It wasn't like like you know that the comic rap, you know, he was rapping about real life issues, especially the song that he did about speaking out against uh, domestic violence. I think that's when he was able to really shed, you know, he was able to shed the fat boy image. Mm-hmm. And I know a lot of people. For some reason, they would always confuse him in Heavy D because I remember when I first heard Tripping Out, I thought it was a Heavy D record. Really? Yeah, now mind you, I was six, seven years old at the time when Tripping Out came out. But, you know, when you kind of hear like the rhyme style and everything, it kind of has a similar thing, you know, with Heavy D. That's another rapper whose career I felt is un- was undervalued and glossed over, should have had a sitcom like Will. And I think MCA Uptown didn't really tap into his crossover appeal like they should have because Heavy D had crossover appeal. I mean, yeah, the fact is that he, the fact that Heavy D was a, he crossed over to the pop by being himself. I mean, women love him because I remember when I was in college, I had a um, guidance counselor. You know, she actually was a white woman from Ohio. Who was like her name was Dr. Perdue, one of my favorite counselors out there. 
she was talking about, she was into black music. Some of her favorite acts was The Whispers. And she said, she said, Rashawn, I love that heavy D video. Is it good to you? I love the, um, I love the, you know, I love the push. I love the scene with the woman in the bathtub. And I just love how these guys are so, so good looking and so classy. And this is coming from a white woman from Ohio. And another thing too about the crossover thing about if when you talk about heavy the group, I mean DJ and yeah, talented writer producer, he doesn't get props for that. And I actually learned that he actually produces, he produced a song Tyrese's on um, 2003 album, which I call the album that with Tyrese, you know, um, I call it uh, Tyrese's um Soka his Wild Oaks album. Mm. We have produced a song for that, and then we had like G with Steven Teroy talented dancers they were able to you know dance in sync they always had a thing where when they danced you could tell that they could the fact that they came with choreography and they was in sync now it was sad that when trouble t-boy had passed away and i know that it was hard for g Wiz to carry on but the fact is that that was a group and i still don't understand why the vh vh1 has not given this group they have not on the heavy voice that it's it's nearly it's a fucking total disgrace. I mean, and one thing about Heavy D we can also mention is that his flow, because he was a Jermaine, he had his flow was very versatile. And the fact is that he did songs with Michael and Janet. And he did and then he when he went to show his Jamaican roots, he got with um Supercat. And Heavy D is also a talented songwriter producer as well. Yeah, because when he always did that, that's where you get that Caribbean influence. With him being Caribbean, the whole toasting the da di di da di 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 da di di da 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 what I come out to play, hey, that 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 whole vibe and uh you know so that's one thing we can't ignore with hip hop is that the influence of the islands you know with Cool Herc being from Jamaica, um Heavy D's Caribbean roots, Biggie Caribbean roots, I believe KRS One Caribbean roots, so pretty much. If it wasn't for those folks immigrating over to the U.S., we wouldn't have this. Oh yeah, Mario, we got a and Sandy Pepper Denton of so on Pepper. She's from Jamaica, and and my great grandmother was on my my maternal great grandmother was from Barbados. Wow. So what is it that you think it is about the island culture that really resonates with people, especially you know? 90s dance hall with Super Cat, Spraga Benz, Mr. Vegas, Nika. Um, you know, we could just go on and on. So, what is it about that style that really gets people up and going? Yellow Man, Mad Cobra, Mad Lion. Well, I'm glad you mentioned it. Like I said, even though my great grandmother was from the island, she migrated to the States when she was a little. So, I was not really raised. You know, with that Caribbean culture, but I would say that to them it was different because a lot of Caribbean, you know, people of Caribbean said they was actually moving to New York, Jersey, Connecticut, in the South. So I guess that when it came to the music, when you hear when they hear something different, hearing you know people you know speak and rap and sing with the accent and you know with their lingo and the style, it was like it, it captivated them. And the fact is that. Uh, in the in the dancing, a uh, lot you know, seeing like you know the men grind the women, you know, with the pom pom shorts and doing the butterfly and you know those reggae parties, and I think it really helped. It was sort of like showing that 
it was showing that, you know, there are Blacks, you know, there were Black people that was from the Alice's of, they had something to say. And for them to bring it into the culture, into music, it, it really helped educate. It was really a form of education. Right. And going to talk a little bit about Guy's debut album and how it was coming off of Make It Last Forever, which came out in 87, and the Guy's debut album came out in 88. Um, you're familiar with the record You Can Call Me Crazy off of the de debut album for Guy, right? Yeah, that's my all-time favorite song by Guy. Yeah, and you know that's I'll Be Sure on the backing vocals, right? I learned about that, yeah, because that's, yeah, I learned about that yesterday because when I was in high school, one of my, I used to work in the library, and I was a junior, one of my, and one of the co-workers, she was a senior, she, she grew up in the Satan Project, and we were just talking about music, so she was the one that gave me a sort of a hint of what happened, because she was saying that, you know, because the next day she bought this, the tape cover, and I'm like, and I'm so that's how I learned about Timmy. So it's basically the story that she told me at that time was, you know, it was like, you know, Teddy, you know, like, you know, people was in Teddy's ear, you know, super him up. And that's why, that was one of the reasons why Timmy left. And we actually, a lot of people thought that it was actually Teddy singing lead on You Can, Go, you Can Call Me Crazy because they didn't know the situation with Timmy at the time. A lot of people thought it was Teddy Riley singing lead on You Can Call Me Crazy. No, because when I interviewed Timmy Gatlin, it was pretty much to where, you know, Mr. Griffin, Gene Griffin, he was one of those guys you didn't want to cross wrong. And, you know, once questions were asked by, hey, what's this in the contract? Was that in the contract? Uh, Timmy exited, and then in came Damian Hall. Now, when I interviewed Kyle West, I asked him about that record since Al B was on the backgrounds, and he had told me that that was originally supposed to go on in effect mode. But what ended up happening was Gene Griffin ended up taking that song back to put it on Guy's album. And they still kept Al B on the back of vocals because they didn't have time to recut it. Because obviously it was one of those records that they cut before Timmy exited because his lead vocals were on the album. And then when it came time to release Guy's album, Timmy had already left by that point, but the album had already been shipped out. So they didn't have time to do a reshoot of the album cover to include Damon. So that's why if you look at Guy's album cover, that's why it's Aaron, Teddy, and Timmy. Well, yeah, because like I said, cause, yeah, that's something, like I said, because I didn't know the story at the time. My friend, she told me one different story, but then, you know, like throughout the years, you know, listening, you know, to what happened then. I, and that's the thing that I, when I, that's how first, Learned about you when I when you interviewed um Timmy Gap, you know, with Timmy Gatlin, I was like, this was like a it was this was like the mystery man. It's like, you know, what happened. And I think the fact is that Timmy just he he still was producing and, and writing for other arts, but he also like kept a low profile. And I think he just probably wasted the right time to tell his side of the story. But I also want to say that just when God should be when they when they start to honor God, they he should be they should give him some type of award as well because I mean, he's 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 a co-founding member, and I love how when I see how Damon when he does certain shows, he does give his props because there was a group called Fort, I think it was Hamilton Park. They remade "Piece of My Love," and they made and they said we're gonna give a shout out to the to the you know to all the members of God. Mm -hmm. And it was something you had said 
backtracking to the spinners, you mentioned that Harry, he's the only original member living of the spinners. And it got me thinking how, you know, Otis Williams, last living original member of the Temptations, and Abdul Duke Fakir, only living original member of the Four Tops. And how, you know, we need to still honor these groups while they're still here, especially, you know, since we only have one surviving original member left because we're losing folks from that era left and right. That is true. Yes, that is true about, you know, about these schools because a lot of people say that the spinners, I mean, the fact that the spinners get a start of Hollywood Walk of Fame early in their career should have made the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame realize that, you know what, we got to put this group in. Another group I want to add that I'm tired of getting them get respect is the Marvelettes. Now, recently, um, Catherine Anderson Schaffner, who was the original Marvelette, she stayed until the group disbanded. She passed away in September, so the only original member is Juanita Calamotley. Juanita had left early in her career due to, you know, exhaustion and health issues with her traveling. So she retired. So she retired, and then it was a quartet. And then with George, George, George Tillman, she left because of sickle cell anemia and lupus. Mm-hmm. Now, they, they see the Mother Marvelous, they gave Motel their first no one pop hit. And, and one thing I got to say about what happened after they disbanded, Smoke, I learned that Smokey Robinson actually gave, he was he wanted to do a business with this businessman named Larry Mashak. And it didn't go well. So basically, to pay off the debt, Smokey gave him ownership of the Marvelous name without even contacting the original member. So he had a bunch of fake Marvelous performing for years, and these heifers are going on saying, oh, we did this song 61, and, everybody, and it's like you wasn't even around. So that's why the Marvel. it was hard for, even though the Marvelous had retired and George and Don, Kat, Gladys Horton, who found the group, she was she had to even perform as Gladys Horton or she, a guest star. So Mary Wilson of Supremes, who was my show, may she rest in peace, she decided that she was tired of the imposter groups because they was having like fake Supremes and even like a fake Sam and Dave, even though um Dave passed away. So she got so she so she went to Congress and helped get a bill passed called the Truth and Rock Act. And that Truth and Rock bill has been passed in several states, including Las Vegas. And it says that in order for anybody to use a group's name of a of a past group, you have to have at least one original surviving member. If you don't have an original surviving member, you cannot call yourself you cannot call yourself by the group's name. You have to say tribute or reveal or you or the group and the venue can get sued and shut down. Yeah. And that's kind of like the tough thing when you still have like these legacy acts still out touring and you don't have the surviving member. And like you said, you have to have it to where one surviving original member, or you can't use the name at all. Right. And speaking of, you know, original members, um, back to New Edition, that's another group that is not a matter of if, it's just a matter of when for them to get inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. So, you know, their, their time is coming where they're going to get their induction in the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. I mean, you know, we saw what they did with, the new edition story when that came out in 2017, the numbers that it brought BET, the upcoming residency in Vegas, there's a high demand for the tickets and how anytime when any comes to your town, it's any heartbreak 
all the way around. So when do you think it'll be the time when Ronnie, Bobby, Ricky, Mike, Ralph, and Johnny finally get that call say, hey, you guys are inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame? So, so, and I would say that the fact is that they perform, all six members perform a tribute to the spinners. I mean, he, I mean, the fact is that for them to perform a tribute to the spinners, you know, with and hearing Bobby sing, could it be a fall in love, you know, with, and it showed that Bobby got range and then Ricky doing the smooth pruning and Ralph singing, and they, they did Rubber Band Man. Oh, you hear, you know, Mike Bivens, rubber band, hearing Mike Bivens with his bass ad living and Johnny Gill. And for them to have the current member of the of the um spinners, you know, come and join them. That was his way of passing the torch and letting them know you're next. Right. And like I said, to think about how, you know, they come from that school of the spinners, Shy Lights, Delphonics, Temptations, Blue Magic, The Whispers, and Repain, who had a group that he was in a touch of blue and pretty much passed on what he did with that group and the untouchables. You can catch my interview with Daryl Drumgold of the untouchables and to just see how this five man group out of Boston, later six Johnny from DC pretty much changed the face of pop R and B and how still 40 plus years later, they're still packing out, still touring. That's amazing. The fact that New Edition can still tour as a group and as separate acts, because Velvet DeVoe just released a single with Reverend Run and Run DMC, and I think that Ralph was saying, he would put on his Facebook page that he's having something coming out pretty soon, so we don't know whether it's going to be a solo single or an album. And in the Michael Bivens documentary that came out, that was really a, a dope documentary because we got a chance to learn about about Bill. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was about to ask you about that. Yeah, definitely a dope documentary. A lot of things I didn't know about him and how, you know, it's funny how you think one thing is going to take you out of the hood, but another thing comes in and does the same thing you wanted to do with that original goal because originally... Mike was all about basketball. So ball ball is life. That 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 was him. But you know, once he linked up with the fellas, it became where this singing and dancing is gonna get me out of Roxbury, out of Orchard Park. Oh yes. And the fact is that he still he still incorporate basketball with singing and dancing because 30 years ago, Bill Bill came out with a single called Above the Rim of their album Hootie Man. And they and they talked about you know, like, you know, and they talked about, you know, like, you know, I mean, Ronnie was rapping about the, you know, like the sport and Biff was talking about what really goes about how, how it is in the hood where, you know, you know, you know, you come, it's like this. People try to, they think because I'm short and he goes, brothers can't stick me. He was just saying that, you know, people thinking that I'm short, but I can still, you know, boy, you know, we can go out there, you know, I'll bet you some money. I'm, I, you know, I will um, rip your ass out. You know, I score, I shoot my three pointers, take the money, and I'm and I'm taking the girl too. Mm. And what's your thoughts on George Michael getting inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame to see Andrew Ridgely, former bandmate from Wham, do the induction speech and then the performances with Adam Levine doing Faith, 
Miguel doing Careless Whisper and Carrie Underwood performing One More Try in honor of the late George Michael? Well, seeing Andrew induct his best friend was very emotional because the fact is that they started, in fact, the fact that Andrew was the one that saw the talent in George and told him that, you know, he helped him gain confidence and self-esteem. And then when he did the farewell concert, George hugged him and thanked him. And you know, Jerome, you notice that you know, like most sing lead singers of group, they they so focused on their solo careers that it's hard for them to even talk about reuniting with their old bandmates. Mm -hmm. Well, George Michael, when he really wanted a wham reunion with Andrew, he wanted to reunite with Andrew and the rest of the band, in the original band, as a way of you know, I think to say thank you. But Andrew was like. It was like, listen, okay, I make my money off of the first album and Kelly's Whisper. I have a good life, so I don't want to go back on the road. But I think that, you know, George probably wanted to do it more because it was a way of saying thank you, and he wanted to do something for the fans. So the fact that George Michael became a huge international star, for him to actually, you know, ask his friend, you know, just do this one last time. And I think that George probably was disappointed, but I think he had to respect his friend's wishes. Right, and then looking at the Wham! documentary that came out on Netflix, you got to give Andrew Master props to know that, hey, I'm here, this guy, he has it, and I'm not going to be the one to be the anchor to hold him down and have him take a back seat because my ego's hurt because he's the one and I'm not. That's true because Andrew, because Andrew even said that his father wanted him to go to university, which they call in England college, go to university, get a degree, and get a and get a um, job. But then you know when um when when Kale, when he saw this making the money, then he's like this. He was like this, Dad, you want me to go back to school now? His father's like, I'm proud. Because I actually learned that from the first album, they both wrote the songs, but then when it came to make it big, they put it in Michael's hands to write produce. But George, one thing about George, he also made sure that Andrew, you know, had some like ad-libs. But when he came, because Kayla's Whisper was written when they were 16. It didn't make the first album. So George has, George made it very clear, Kayla's Whisper is going to go on this album. And that's how um Andrew is eating off that because Tamia actually covered it on her solo debut album back in 1998. Mm, yeah, and I didn't notice until the documentary that he had cut another version version of Careless Whisper George did with Jerry Wexler down in Muscle Shows at Fame Studios. And good thing he scrapped that version and went with the version that we all know and love today. And then also, too, if you listen to the Make It Big album, you can definitely tell the heavy, heavy influence Motown had on George Michaels with the writing and the production. Because if you listen to Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go, it's very Motown-esque with its melody, with its structure. Wake me up before you go-go. It sounds like a Motown record. And, um, and also, Everything She Wants, that's one of my favorite Wham songs. Duh, 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 and Andrew. Uh-huh, uh-huh, uh-huh. And that bass. Won't you right. And George, he was really good at it. Now, one thing I liked about George Michael was that when he teamed up with Reefer Franklin for I Knew You Were Waiting For Me, Mm. Now, the unsung hero of George Michael and Wham, Dion Estes, 
rest in peace. And, you know, he, him being from Detroit, and I believe his high school music teacher was James Jamerson from the Funk Brothers in Motown. So there's that connection right there. And when Dion Essence released his Spell album in 1989 and the song Heaven Help Me, you know, when I first heard it, I was like, that definitely sounded like an outtake from Faith that George said, hey, Dion, you want to cut this? Well, I got to check this album too. Also, George Michael recorded a duet with Jody Wiley on her solo debut album. Oh, really? Paul's say no. Now, Jody Wiley had revealed, like years later, they asked her, because she said that her and George wanted to release it as a duet, because Jody had said that when she left Shawmar, she was in England, when they did the um, Do You Know It's Christmas, her and George Michael became good friends. And he actually, he was a fan of, of Shawmar and her voice. So he said, listen, when you get your record deal, I'm going to produce a song for you. So she was like, cool. When she said, I got the deal and stuff, you, you see what I'm produce? He said, no, I got something better. Let's sing a duet. Now, Jolie said that the reason why it didn't become, they, they, it was politics with Columbia Records. They would not, they didn't want that single to be released because the fact is that it was going to be released on the MCA. So that's why Learn to Say No. And Jolie has said that on the day when they did a killer fierce video for that song. Almost kind of like, sound like the same situation with uh, Tell Me I'm Not Dreaming with Jermaine because Michael was on it, but I believe it was where Epic wouldn't clear it for Erisa to release it because you don't want to have Jermaine outshine the King of Pop, who was also your brother. But as we saw in Janice's documentary, it kind of feels that it kind of felt to me at least like Michael always wanted to include the others and everything, but it was where folks were in the ears and different folks in the camp was trying to keep everybody separate because it's still mind-boggling to me that she, off of 2300 Jackson Street, was not released as a single. Why? Well, we're going to get into that too, but of course, tell me I'm dreaming, because Jermaine, his book, he actually said that when he got to deal with Arista, he actually reached out to Mike because Mike was like, what are we going to do? He said, no, we're going to be singing and producing. So he said that um, Jermaine said that Michael did produce. So I guess that Michael decided not to take producers' credit because sometimes Michael would do that, you know, ask, you know, to, to, to avoid being overshot in humility. But the fact is that when they performed it on the Victory Tour, when they performed the Victory Tour, everybody was saying that was a highlight. And about, and about, and about she. I mean, even Arsenio Hall, like, so, I mean, that, Epic. I mean, I look this way. When you, when, whenever an album, an artist who hasn't done an album yet, they coming out and they coming out with new material. You have to be able to um hit something for the clubs and the pop radio, but you also got to be able to hit because she, the new Jack Swing, was blowing up epic at the time. She could have been a major hit because the fact is that Teddy Riley was producing it. And ran and that wrote and the Jacksons came out with it. That was the first song I heard from 2300 Jackson Street was she. Now that song could have really, I mean, it became a huge radio hit in New York. And I was saying that this, if I was working at Epic at the time, I would have called it because they was telling me what you want to do with the Jackson. I was the Mimi Conference call it. Listen, what y'all need to do is y'all need to perform at the Showtime at the Apollo. 
I know your history. What you can do is you should do nothing that compares to you. And then do she, because Teddy Riley grew up in those projects. Perform she alive. Yeah, yeah. Randy's vocals were killer on that record. I mean, the Randy and the Gypsies album, another underrated album, but that's a whole nother story for a whole nother topic. And also, you kind of say that record probably had Michael thinking like, hmm, maybe I should link up with this guy. And it wasn't until 91, that was when we got Dangerous. And speaking of Michael, and we're going to close out on this, Next month, they're going to be releasing a documentary on the 40th anniversary of Thriller and how that album changed the face of pop music and is still one of the best-selling albums to this day. So your thoughts on the impact and legacy of Thriller 40 years later? That album, real, I would say, Jerome, that album... Was when that was the album that Michael really took seriously. It was letting you know, okay, you slept on me before. You're not. You're gonna. You're gonna. You're gonna fucking put some respect on my name. The fact is that Michael. I mean, the, I mean, because I did a tribute to the album on my podcast, and what I did is that Michael, the songs that he did, he did songs about drama, romance, and then, um, you know, you know, somebody going after somebody's girl. Then he did like something about horror with Thriller. And what he did with Thriller, which I realized that he was take, he was basically um adding like you know like taking metaphors of you know like horror and romance, and then he did songs about social conscious like Beat It. He's talking about you know about about Rouse and Billy Jean. He's talking about deceptive women, which is a thing that Michael has always sang about as a as deceptive women. Then you have human nature, and you know and and about romance. So Michael Jackson was able to do songs that was very like. So, so uh, songs that had different topics and themes that was unheard of. And we got to talk about the videos. The fact is that Michael saw that in hey, you know, videos is, is, is happening. So I, I have to do videos, but I can't, I don't want to just do the typical doing a two step. I have to be able to um be ahead of the game. Yeah, those videos, especially the thriller video, was viral before viral because I can remember being it being talked about where. When it debuted, it was an event where MTV played it so many times and it was where you pretty much had to stop what you were doing to yeah. see that video. And with that album, it pretty much took him from being a superstar to being a global superstar. He was already global but this took it over the top because when you look at that album it was clear from the giddy up that his main focus was pop 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 because he felt off the wall should have gotten the pop recognition but it was just regulated to being in the black or at the time soul category and let's face it you know the industry is dirty racist and they think um, black artists are not intelligent. Shout out to Jan Winter. Um, but, you know, Michael broke down those barriers and those stereotypes. And Walter Yetnikoff forced MTV's hand and said, look, you're going to play this video. Or else I'm taking the whole Columbia oh, CBS yeah. library off the channel. And that was gangster right there. That was a gangster boss move right there. Yeah, that was definitely definitely a cold move on that and um 
Do you have any shouts you want to give before we conclude this interview, bro? Well, I want to give a shout out to you. You know, thank you, you know, for um inspiring me to, you know, grow and for being on the show. Definitely give a shout out to my family and to um the you know the spinners, George Michael and um Missy Elliott and Kuhur for being Delta Rock Hall of Fame. Shouts to like those who support me and to and you know to if everybody who supports the Professor Slash and those, you know, who are pursuing goals and aspirations, go for it. Don't let anything prevent you from pursuing your goals and, and aspirations. Continue to strive for excellence. And where can folks listen to the Professor's Lounge? You can check the Professor's Lounge out at a new station. It's called Hear This dot backslash the Professor's Lounge. I'm going to do is I'll post a link into your um, page because it's a hard spelling. And you can check out my blog, the Professor's Lounge dot, you know, dot wordpress.com. All right. And you can catch this interview wherever you stream and on YouTube at youtube.com slash beyond the album cover. Ladies and gentlemen, let's give a big thank you once again to my good friend, the professor. Thank you for coming back on once again, bro. Anytime. Yes, sir.